everyone, welcome to the Cornea Corner, a podcast where two new optometrists demystify anterior segment diseases and specialty contact lenses while exploring what's new in the cornea world. My name is Priscilla Chang, and this is my cornea-loving co-host, Shawan Rashid. How's it going, girl? As usual, it's going great. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing well. Anything new to share with our audience? I don't have any jokes this week, so sorry about that. <laughs> um, but I do want to share that I'm actually getting LASIK. What, what? That is so exciting. Yeah, I'm pretty excited about it. I've been without my contact lenses for almost two weeks now, so I've been wearing my glasses just so we can get accurate topography readings and just the best measurements that we can get. It's been a little annoying being back in glasses. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. It's a little sacrifice, and you can reap the rewards soon. (laughs) Yeah, I'm excited about it. Have you had any interesting cases or anything new going on? Any any LASIK or PRK on your end? (laughs) (laughs) No, unfortunately, no. I did recommend a patient to consider refractive surgery because he wanted to overwear his contacts. So that's definitely a conversation that's had in my exam rooms. But this past week, it was the first time I prescribed Latisse. And so that was actually kind of exciting. I had a young girl who came in and she had the nastiest eyelash extensions and she would put them in herself so this was not like going to a professional person to get eyelash extensions she was purchasing like it from like target the individual kind so she would glue them individually glue them on and then she would leave them on for like one to two weeks and then she would take it off clean it and then put it on again and so when she came in it was like end of week two and I was just looking under the slit lamp oh goodness like we gotta do something about this And so, yeah, Latisse ended up being a conversation that came up because I was like, you know, would you consider removing all of those lashes and enhancing your natural lashes with medication? And she's like, well, I never really thought about that. There is an FDA approved medication for this. And so she said yes. And then that's when I was like, okay, now I got to figure out how to actually prescribe this. (laughs) So Latisse is actually prescribed. There's like two different quantities of Latisse that you can prescribe. Um, for those of you who don't know, Latisse is 0.03% by Matapros. It's used at night um, and only applied to the upper eyelashes on both sides. And mm-hmm. side effects are similar to our prostaglandin analog glaucoma drops, so periocular skin and iris hyperpigmentation, conjunctival hyperemia, or dry eyes. And Latisse does have a gradual onset, so it can take up to two months before having an effect. Two months? Two months, yeah. It's a commitment. (laughs) That is a commitment. (laughs) It does contain BAK, and this is the reason why contact lens should not be immediately used after application. And also, patients who have active intraocular inflammation or macular edema or pregnant mothers should be using this with caution. So anyways, I had a really exciting time kind of reviewing the medication and talking to my patient about it, and hopefully she'll take better care of her eyelashes. So you're telling her that she cannot wear lash extensions for two months? Yeah, but she was down. Because <laughs> she, we'll see. I think she was noticing that like there was chunks of like dust and things that would get into her eyelashes, and like she would be, she wouldn't really clean it. She would just rinse it with water. So I think she was aware that this was not healthy for her eyes, but she wanted it mm-hmm. for the cosmetic reasons. Yeah, that'll that'll be interesting. It's it's one of those things that I don't routinely bring up in my explanation like discussion with patients usually I really discuss like makeup hygiene and 
um, how not to apply makeup on your lash line, things like that. But I may start bringing up Latisse more with my female patients who do use mascara and I find chunks of it <laughs> in the middle of the base of their <laughs> eyelashes. <laughs> and they're like, oh, I lost for that like a week ago. And I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good idea. I might, I might start doing that as well. I thought we could talk about uh, a topic that actually someone on our Instagram page uh, requested. Katie Stuckey is uh, her name, and she wanted to learn more about how to fit specialty lenses. And, of course, we can't put all of it in one episode. So <laughs> I thought we could start with a hot topic, which is scleral lenses. Do you happen to have a favorite resource for scleral lenses? Yes, I love the Scleral Lens Education Society. Mm -hmm. Their website is awesome. They have these really great handouts on there that I print out and use to educate my patients on like cleaning. Um, and also they have really great webinars that are hosted by world-renowned experts. So it's always nice to learn from the best. <laughs> mm -hmm, of course. Um, but, I mean, their mission really is just to promote scleral lenses and um, making sure that practitioners know what they're doing as well as uh, having patient safety as their top priority. How about for you? That's a wonderful resource. I'm a part of it. It's actually free, I think. Um, well, I didn't pay for anything, so... <laughs> One that I really like is uh, GPLI, the GP Lens Institute. They have amazing webinars, and they have a whole archive of webinars. That's my favorite thing to to utilize with them. Um, but, of course, they have a lot of resources, too, where you can look up specialty lab directories, and, and um, they have calculators on here, information on billing and coding, just so many things. So let's just get started, Shawan. Like, when do we even consider scleral lenses? What are the indications? So I, I start thinking about a scleral lens benefiting a patient when they have certain corneal opacifications, if they have any kind of corneal irregularity like ectasias or transplants. It could be used for cosmetic reasons, um, if patients have ocular surface disease like severe dry eyes, Sjogren's, things like that. Or honestly, if patients just can't even get the visual quality um, that they need in soft contact lenses or just a, a GP or, or a hybrid, I would just hop on over to a scleral lens in the, at that point. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing our listeners may, may not be familiar with is the cosmetic indication. So can you go into that a little bit more? Yeah, definitely. So the clinical indications, uh, well, the cosmetic indications for using a scleral lens would be like if you wanted to have a hand-painted scleral in PMMA material. So this isn't going to be a gas-permeable material. Mm -hmm. So these are the patients that have atrophia bulbi if they have like a pot a hypotenuse eye or like if they're removing their eye you know just like to have a scleral shell to kind of look like it's real but basically that eye is not useful they can't use it so it doesn't matter mm -hmm. what material it's in and you know PMMA, pmma material is going to be the way to go so that way it can be hand painted on there Another cosmetic reason for using a scleral would be to improve atosis by using a large diameter lens with a significant vault. And so patients with a mild atosis, mm -hmm. aside from um, using <laughs> that eye drop we mentioned last week. Upneke. <laughs> yes, you got it. <laughs> aside from using Upneke, they could use a scleral lens to cosmetically improve that ptosis. Gotcha. Um, let's go over just like the basic language of scleral lenses. So for a design without mentioning any brands, what are the different parts of a scleral lens? 
So there are so many different curvatures that a scleral lens can have based off the brand, but the basic design includes having the central optic zone, and then outside of that, it's going to be the transition or transitional zone. Then at the very edge, it's going to be called the landing zone, or it's also known as the haptic zone. Would you happen to know what each of these zones are kind of meant to use for or what they're used for? Yeah, well, the optic zone is in the name. So really, that's where the prescription is. So, you know, that's one thing that's really interesting that we'll go into later on about choosing the diameter of lenses. So, you know, if your patient has a really large pupil, like this optic zone size or diameter will be very important in determining whether or not they get the vision that they desire. Um, That Mm -hmm. transition zone is usually what falls over the limbus. So it helps kind of determine the shape of the lens and the landing zone is kind of what helps with the alignment so whether or not your lens is shifting in one direction or another the more aligned the lens is to the natural shape of the eye the better fit it is and more comfortable it is for the patient and the more stable it is for the doctor when we're making modifications Mm -hmm. each of them are very different uh not very different but they're they're each very important for certain things Mm-hmm. And depending on the fittings that you may be able to adjust them independent from each other, or you may still have to use SAMFAP. So definitely <laughs> um, have to familiarize yourself with the different lens designs that are out there. Oh, yeah. They can vary quite a bit. Do you happen to know when we first started using scleral lenses and what material they were in? Was it PMMA? No, it's not. I'm back with my quiz questions. <laughs> uh, glass? <laughs> yeah, it is glass. It was glass. It was First introduced 1888, and it was glass material. Then they changed to PMMA, which is not oxygen permeable. And then finally, gas permeable scleral lenses were actually uh, introduced, released, and made, and all that good stuff in the 1970s. So not that long ago. (laughs) In some of our doctor's lifetimes. (laughs) You know, I feel like I remember being at GSLS, and I remember meeting Pat Caroline from Pacific University, and he has a museum up there in Oregon and he has like the very first like you know lenses and I remember him showing me this whole kit and it was all the glass like scleral lenses and he's wow. like feel the material <laughs> and I remember being like oh my gosh this is so heavy but you know that's kind of the compromise that people make to be able to see clearly they're willing to do it like I'm willing to put that in their eye yeah for sure I mean I would do it myself <laughs> honestly it'd be worth it <laughs> Um, so talking about materials, mm-hmm. I mentioned GPLI earlier. GPLI actually has a GP materials list, and it shows some of the materials and their DK values. So that's that's pretty helpful. Priscilla, what are some of the common materials that you like to use for your scleral lenses? I would say Boston and Optimum are the most common ones. So Boston is from Bosch and Lom, and Optimum is from Contamac. For Boston Exo material. I tend to fit Boston XO2. The DK for that is 141, so pretty high. Um, The Contamac Optimum material, the highest DK is Optimum Extreme, which is 125. But one of the cool things about Optimum is that Optimum Extra has a DK value of 100, and it has the lowest wedding angle listed on the GPLI materials webpage. So its its wedding angle is three. And if you remember from optometry school, the lower the wedding angle, the more wettable the lens material is. So really, in terms of materials, you want to choose the standard one that's usually recommended by the lab, but um, this material that they push is probably one that maximizes the DK as well as minimizes that wedding angle so you don't get a ton of deposit on your lens. 
One of the interesting things that I read about while researching for this episode is that the decay of tears is believed to be around 99. So one of the ways we optimize oxygen transmissibility is uh, reducing that tear layer, choosing the maximum decay material that we can get, as well as reducing the central thickness of the lens. Another thing when you're ordering RGP lenses is that there are different treatment options that the lab can uh, provide you. One of them is plasma treatment, and that helps improve the wettability. Another add-on is hydropeg, which helps improve the wettability and makes the lenses more resistant to deposits. Um, poor wettability can lead to poor VAs and unreliable over-refractions, so keeping that in mind, sometimes it's worth the extra money for those treatments. For sure. Yes, scleral lenses are indicated for dry eye patients. The cornea will feel better. However, the lid interaction with the lens can also have a sensation of dryness. And so if there's not a low wetting angle or, you know, if there's no Mm -hmm. special coating on there, the patient will still complain about dryness. Right. But another thing I think with the dry patients is just making sure their lens is well conditioned. One of the things that I spoke about with Dr. Jedlica, he is the one of the designers for Zen lenses. He was telling me how he actually doesn't use a ton of hydropeg, but it's because he really conditions the lens. Because when our patients are cleaning their scleral lenses, sometimes they don't really rub their lenses all the way to really build that condition or that conditioning layer or cushion into the lens, and that's why we get poor wettability. I'm going to have to put that into consideration. Obviously, with scleral lenses, you're going to need, like, when you're thinking about where to start, you'll need to have some equipment. I was thinking about some must-haves to be able to fit them. Obviously, you need a slit lamp. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you'll need some sort of auto-refractor because you have to have K-values. You right. have to be able to get their topography. So I think topography is very important to have. And then an anterior segment OCT. Those last two, the topography and the anterior segment OCT, are relatively optional in my opinion, but they're going to be very, very useful. And um, But the slit lamp and autorefractor are a must. <laughs> That's for sure. When I was thinking about this topic of equipment, I, I just remember being at school and at my residency, and we had all the toys at our disposal. And now that I'm in private practice, like I can't be like, oh, I'm going to request to have a corneal scleral topographer, like the Aglet or the SMAP, or, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you really just need the bare minimum. So I would agree with your list. But some of the investments you can make if you are going to be managing lots of pathology, like pathological corneas, that are coming in to get scleral lens fitting would be like specular endothelial microscopy. So making sure transplants are healthy as well as the cornea isn't uh, losing any endothelial cells from getting endemitis from you know the lenses and not or being hypoxic. Another investment would be into wavefront technology or having an aberrometer. This is especially important if you're fitting lenses that correct for higher order aberrations, which we'll talk about later. But yeah, definitely helpful to determine if you know some of the vision complaints your patients are complaining about is something that you can fix with scleral lenses or may require further designing uh, a lens to help them out. Some of these are you know spoiling yourself, treating yourself. <laughs> If money was no thing, treat yourself. (laughs) Let's see. So when we talk about scleral lenses, a lot of us 
are aware that you can have diagnostic fitting sets, but you know, you can also be ordering lenses empirically. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so when you're fitting a lens empirically, we're basically talking about ordering a lens without putting a trial lens on the eye. So since you're not putting a lens on the eye, you have to get as much information as you can get. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have to know the fitting guides. You have to have prior knowledge of the patient's lens wear and like being able to know that brand that you're working with. You have to have the K values, uh, topography, auto refractor would be helpful, but definitely a refraction as well. If you have topography, you can get other detailed things like E value, Q value, stuff like that. But you just need to have as much information as possible. The pros to doing an empirical fitting include maybe having less chair time, and then you don't have to spend money on a diagnostic trial lens set. And it also forces you to get good with your specialty lens ordering skills. So you learn from your mistakes more, I think, in my opinion. When I mention saving chair time, this can be relative. (laughs) You can have less chair time early on, but it may require an additional reorder or exchange or, you know, it, it kind of evens out, I think. You save chair time initially, but you may have to have the patient come back for an additional visit or two. So that's part of the cons, you know, for fitting someone empirically. So more reorders, and you don't get to see any lens or lid interaction, which is very important for comfort. And then if you use just an autorefractor, the K values only measure the central three millimeters. That may not be enough. One of the good things is you get a a wow factor whenever that lens comes in, though, because they haven't had a lens on their eye. So when you put it on, that may be the first time that they have excellent vision. So that would be pretty exciting for them. I guess does scleral or ordering lenses off a corneal scleral topographer be categorized as empirical as well? I think so. Do you mean just having a topography scan and the refraction and just not putting a lens on at all? Um, well, I'm just thinking about like if you had the SMAP 3D or you had an eaglet in your office, you just do a scan of the eye. And I know with Boston site, you could just automatically connect it and just send it straight to their lab. And I think the only thing you need to do if you wanted to is put a lens, just any lens on the eye and do a over refraction and include that information for them. And then they they pop out the first lens for you without, you know, a ton of chair time. But I guess that's like partially empirical because you do have to put a lens on the eye to get an OR. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would consider that diagnostic since you're getting an OR with the lens. Sometimes you can just send the information just from the SMAP or whatever machine you use. And I would still consider that empirical is just like ad- advanced empirical. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So since you're not actually putting a lens on the eye, you have to have, you know, some some helpful tools to get you started. I recommend using GPLI, using their calculators, using, you know, the Scleral Lens Society that you mentioned, using the iDoc app and lens websites to get as close as possible with that first lens selection mm-hmm. or ordering. With diagnostic fitting, it's kind of exciting because you start from a trial lens set. So you're usually able to put a, a lens on the eye, figure out, you know, what the OR is. Patients are usually really happy because at that point, with that lens, you can get them probably close to 2020, hopefully. And then it's a big, like, aha moment because, you know, they haven't been able to see that for quite some time. 
Um, so definitely a lot of excitement and potentially tears in the office <laughs> when you fit diagnostically. There's usually less exchange because when you put the lens on, you can really see uh, how it fits on the eye, how it settles and modify kind of those peripheral curves as necessary to fit it, you know, more appropriately or have better alignment. And there's also more confidence in the doctor because, you know, the patient gets to observe you in your process. Of course, the cons is, you know, potentially spending more chair time with the patient because you may or may not put multiple trial lenses into the eye. And a tip for this, as we mentioned earlier, is really condition the lens in a fitting set. Otherwise, if you have poor wettability, the patient's just like, I can't see, I'm looking through a fog, but it may be fitting perfect, but they just can't see out of it. And so that is key. What was the tip that you recommended for diagnostic fittings? Oh, making sure to condition the lenses really well. When the lenses come in, they like for a new diagnostic fitting set, usually it's not conditioned. So you got to go through each lens and really like disinfect it first of all, but also condition the lens. So what I like using is Boston Advanced Conditioner and you just really rub that conditioner into the lens so that when you do use it, you don't have poor wettability. So let's talk about the overall fitting process. You want to start off with a really good case history and just being able to provide the expectations to the patients. So you have to learn about their medical and ocular history and past management strategies and contact lens modalities. Have they tried scleral lenses before? Have they tried, you know, hard lenses uh, in general? Any RGPs or hybrids? And, you know, what did they like about them? What did they not like about them? That's very helpful. If you have a patient, like you're so excited to present the idea of a scleral lens and you get into the whole process of it and they tell you, oh, I've tried this, but I didn't like it. (laughs) I mean, that's kind of a waste of time. So, you know, it's important to know their history, just like anything else. Proper documentation is also key for insurance coverage. So prior attempts or failed treatments, you want to mention that into the chart. And as we mentioned, the indications, some of them can be progressive. So you got to assemble the information, the topography, the OCT, et cetera, being able to compile all that. Right. You can get a lot from case history. <laughs> oh, yeah, definitely. It's so important. It's just like a, a red eye, honestly. The more you can get from the history, the better. <laughs> yes. <laughs> when I mentioned expectations, you want to tell the patient, hey, it's going to take multiple visits for this to actually work. I usually tell my patients the first pair of lenses that arrive are not the ones (laughs) they're not going to be the ones you have to be able to make adjustments on it and so just expect this you know for the long haul for a few months the good thing is once you get a good lens or a good brand or diameter once you get a good overall lens for that patient and they're stable the condition is stable it's going to be very easy for years after you're able to really reorder with making minimal changes so that's very convenient I always tell patients, you know, we just got to work through this initially, and then it becomes a lot easier after that. I like telling them that we're going to be friends because we'll be seeing each other. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to have to like each other. What do you do after a case history or, you know, talking to the patient? How do you usually start off? Well, I guess besides setting the expectation, it's reviewing the costs and seeing if they actually want to go through with it. But, you know, regardless of whether or not we are fitting lenses, some of the things that are some of the things that are important to note is, you know, do a really thorough eye exam. So know any pre-existing scars or conditions that are in the visual access that could reduce your best corrected visual acuity. For example, like fugues, cataracts, macular degeneration or corneal dystrophies. 
And then definitely use sodium flu fluorescein on the eye. Stain the eye and the conge. See what's going on. Look at the lid position. See if there's any conjunctival elevation like a pinguecula or a pterygium, things or bleb or stents that are going to affect your fitting potentially. Look at the blink patterns. Like, do they blink all the way? Is that something that's concerning for you? Um, and definitely those topographies you mentioned. So if you have a corneoscleral topography, great. You get more information. You know, really look at where is the ectasia happening? Where do you have elevation? And, you know, it's actually a very good educational tool for your patients as well to explain why they potentially are indicated for scleral lenses and why they failed in the past to be fitted with soft lenses. So... Yeah. <laughs> Some, you know, I remember in my residency, like a lot of the patients would be like, oh, I didn't realize like, you know, that was why I wasn't seeing well. And like the number of times we heard that, it was just like, it, it really reassured us like that we're doing the right thing by spending the, the few minutes to go through the map with them and show them like circle where the visual access is or that, you know, area that they're seeing out of and how much irregularity, irregularity there is. Mm -hmm. um, our contact lens fitter love explaining the K values using like amount of dollars. So it's like, you got a lot of money over here. <laughs> no over here or something. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely helpful to have that information in the fitting process. And of course, if you have a diagnostic fitting lens, you kind of know where to start depending on where the fitting set is. And that first step really kind of depends on the brand or the fit set. Mm -hmm. Usually you start with the diameter of the lens or the base curve, but we'll just kind of start by talking about the diameter. The diameter of the scleral lens that you choose can be influenced by the horizontal visible iris diameter or that limbal zone width. If the eye is more of like an oval shape, then you may consider measuring the vertical visible iris diameter, which we mentioned, I think, in our was a second episode, the BVID. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, the BVID. Right. <laughs> the larger diameter the lens are, this is going to allow for more clearance and you're going to have a larger landing zone. So you think about it in the analogy of having snowshoes kind of against the eye instead of like stilettos. So you have more of an area for, you know, the weight of the lens to be distributed. Um, but, you know, with larger diameter lenses, they are more prone to decentration. Uh, so that's kind of mm -hmm. a compromise, you know, <laughs> just being aware of that. The optic zone diameter is influenced by the diameter of the actual scleral lens. So the actual part you see through will depend on how big the lens is. And I think that makes sense. Um, but this is dependent on the lens design. Um, larger overall lens tend to have a larger optical zone. That's pretty straightforward. <laughs> that makes sense. There are different types of I guess, sizes of scleral lenses. Um, in school, we learned about the corneal scleral, the semi-scleral, mini-scleral, and the true scleral. Uh, we're mainly going to be talking about mini-scleral. So these are lenses that are about 15 to 18 millimeters in diameter. And sclerals are actually like really large lenses. So these are the lenses that are over 18 millimeters. So very, very big ones. Um, Shawan, can you talk a little bit more about base curve? Yeah, I can. So you mentioned the true scleral size being larger than 18 millimeters. And do you happen to know, I have another quiz question. <laughs> um, do you know the size of the scleral in millimeters? I do not. <laughs> what is it? Mm, 24 millimeters. Oh, wow. Yeah. So once you go with like, you know, some therapeutic scleral lenses are like 21 millimeters, 22 millimeters, Got to get them lids out the way. 
Wait, so where are you measuring that from? The 24 is from, like, the Fortnite? Like, which part of this? Like, where are we measuring? (laughs) So if we were measuring, like, the largest diameter of the sclera, it's 24 millimeters. Oh, I see what you mean. Like, say you, like, pried open the eyelids, how much sclera is visible? Yeah, exactly. It was a little bit hard to explain, but... Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. When we talk about the base curve of a scleral lens, the general idea that you want to get in your mind is prolate versus oblate. So remember, Mm -hmm. prolate scleral lenses are lenses that are a little bit curvier in the center. That's the way that I describe it to patients. And oblate ones are flatter in the center and kind of have almost a reverse geometry shape to it. Right. I like to explain it like either your eyeballs shape like a hill Mm-hmm. or a basketball or it's shaped like a plateau so yeah if you had like lasik or you had a cornea transplant that's an oblate cornea and if you have a normal eye or a keratoconus it's probably a prolate shaped eye mm-hmm. yeah one thing that bothers me is when sometimes some patients are told like you know they have astigmatism their eyes shaped like a football and I'm just like no <laughs> that's keratoconus <laughs> Well, you know, I think a lot of practitioners actually use that as an analogy for corneal astigmatism, except patients never remember that. Like, I've had a patient come in, like, oh, my my doctor told me my eyeballs were like almonds. And I was like, where are all these analogies coming from? I'm like, okay, let's let's re-educate here. (laughs) That's a new one. I'll admit that's a new one. Right. Picking the base curve, the best thing to really look at is just, honestly, the fitting set guidelines. Because it, it really varies based off the brand that you're going with, but they do a really good job of telling you which base curve to start with. And just like any other types of lenses, the base curve of a lens is usually selected based off the corneal values, the K values of the cornea. So this is why an autorefractor is a must when it comes to being able to fit. Or topography, yeah, definitely topography, definitely autorefractor and topography would be amazing to have. Mm-hmm. So that's how I would go about selecting the base curve. Now we need to look at how the lens will land on the eye. So we're looking at the landing zone. And something to consider for that is, do we have enough sclera for the lens to land? Like, is the lens going to be too large or too small? Do we need a toric landing zone or not? The back surface of the lens can have toricity to it. When we think about toric landing zones, we're basically saying the sclera has a toric shape to it. Just like how the cornea can have a toric shape, the sclera can have a toric shape. Interestingly enough, 90% of scleras are actually toric, and the flattest part of the sclera is nasally. If you go with a spherical landing zone, sometimes you'll end up having decentration or like impingement, compression, blanching, like a number of issues. The landing zone is just made to, is made toric to improve the fit of the lens. Right, and that's how we we achieve that alignment fit we were talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the last area that we can kind of adjust is the central clearance. So with scleral lenses, it's meant to vault over the cornea in the in the area of the limbus with a fluid reservoir. And the central clearance, we usually talk about it in terms of increasing or decreasing the sagittal height. When you say increase a sagittal height, it means you're trying to lift the lens off the eye. And decrease means you try to decrease that kind of area below the lens in the center. The central clearance is usually manipulated by changing the base curve or the sagittal height. And usually we talk about it in sagittal height, which is why we always talk about it in microns. The goal really is to get 350 microns before lens settling. And this is actually in normal corneas. And so, you know, 
when you have an abnormal eye, we these numbers may not quite fit. You just do your best to, to achieve a healthy mm-hmm. fit. Lenses do settle gradually over the first few hours of wearing, and 80% of the settling occurs during the first four hours. So if you are fitting a patient with a lens in office or it's the first time they're coming in, you're putting the lenses on, you definitely want to check the fit after you know at least 20 to 30 minutes so you allow some settling to occur before you look at the fit. And if you're going to be looking at a patient at a follow-up, then you want to have them wear it for more hours before it, or for at least four hours before they come in. After settling, you want a minimum of 100 to 200 microns. So the you know magic number is to aim for 150. Um, mm-hmm. For keratoconic patients, you may actually want to consider adding a little extra space in the central clearance just in case if there's progression over the next year so they don't come to their next follow-up with touch. Um, but of course, uh, hopefully you're monitoring these keratoconic patients closer than that. But the best way to look at the central clearance is actually with a slit lamp or with an yeah. OCT. So with a slit lamp, you can put it into an optic section and you can actually compare how thick that fluid reservoir is compared to the thickness of the actual lens itself. So one of the resources we'll attach on our website is the Michigan College of Optometry Scleral Lens Fit Scale. Really helpful to familiarize yourself or familiarize yourself with fitting or assessing this tear fluid reservoir without using an OCT so you can kind of expedite how fast your fits are. There was a study done at the University of Waterloo in 2014, and it showed that clinicians actually tend to underestimate the clearance when we assess with the slit lamp and with fluorescein in the bowl, and we underestimate it by 50 microns. So, And this was regardless of prior experience with fitting lenses, so just account for that as well if you're solely using slit lamp to gauge the fit of your lenses. <laughs> awesome. So once we get the lens on the eye that we actually like, now it's time to assess it. I can kind of go through my process of how I like to assess it. Everyone's different. You're going to find things that you like doing and things, you know, the the most efficient and and quickest way for you to be able to assess a lens. So what I recommend doing, fill the lens bowl with a non-preservative saline and dip sodium fluorescein in there. Insert the lens yourself and you're going to use white light under the slit lamp, not the cobalt blue light. (laughs) Um, Sodium fluorescein is used to assess the clearance and depth of the reservoir and the corneal tissue after removal. So it's pretty essential for being able to fit these lenses. Remember that human eyes can't see under 20 microns of sodium fluorescein. And just like you mentioned, the lens settles 80% within the first four hours. So whenever patients come in for follow-ups when you're assessing the lens, you want to remind them that they have to wear the lens at least... I tell them two to three hours before arriving, but you definitely want them to have it. You don't want them throwing it in 10 minutes before their appointment, basically. (laughs) Right. So education, education. And so now that you've got your white light up with the scleral lens on and the slit lamp, I start with the edge of the lens and move inward and then use the lowest magnification. So I put on the 10X mag or the lowest mag, and I assess the overall fit and the centration of the lens. I use a wide beam and I look at the overall centration first. I look for any areas of blanching. I look for impingement, compression, just, you know, anything generally that could be wrong with the lens. And then I hop on over to 16x or mid magnification to assess the overall, like the limbal clearance, but the overall clearance as I'm scanning across the cornea, like how does the clearance change? 
And this mag is also good for checking the peripheral landing and seeing if there's edge lift and things like that. Finally, I bump it up all the way to the highest magnification and I look at the central and paracentral clearance. That's the system that I like to use and it works pretty well for me. Everyone's a little different though. Right, right. One of the things I learned during my residency is after you put the lens in and you have that fluorescein in the tear reservoir, if you have a diagnostic fit that you're starting and you just chose the first lens, mm -hmm. it's actually really helpful if you had like a blue flashlight or the cobalt blue and, you know, a, a keychain form or something that you can quickly just assess on the eye whether or not you have enough clearance. So if you notice any dark spots or areas of touch, you automatically know, like, even if this lens settled, it's not a good lens to assess your fit. So you should just immediately take it off and go to the next fitting lens or next lens in the fitting set that allows for a higher sag. Mm -hmm. So that's just the only thing I needed to, I guess, add to <laughs> your process. Yeah, no, that's a great tip. I mean, there's no point in wasting your time doing all that when the lens is already bearing on the cornea and it hasn't even settled. And patients love seeing it too. You're like, we achieved the glow. <laughs> They're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. I've had so many patients that want a picture of it. And so I try to take a picture of it and they think it's so cool or they have their significant other there and they're like, oh my gosh, you have alien eyes or something. They get so excited about it and take pictures and videos. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's so cute. While you have the lens on, you can also check for a leakage. So I mentioned edge lift. Edge lift is basically the edge of the lens lifting off from the sclera. And if you have a little bit, I mean, that's okay. The way that I assess that is if I see a shadow. And when if you can achieve binocularity in the slit lamp, you can actually see there could be a space between the lens and the sclera. Sometimes if there's too much edge lift, there could be fluid exchange under there basically. So you always want to check for that because if you have too much edge lift, that can cause fogging and decrease their vision throughout the day. And they might have to take the lens out and reapply. So I put a sodium fluorescein strip on top of the lens. I wet it and then I put it on top of the lens and I just wait a couple seconds, let them blink. And then under the slit lamp, I can see if there's any sodium fluorescein seeping through the edges of the lens. You'll see it on top of the sclera. And I actually have a picture of that that I can share. I have a case that I want to go over with this episode and I have a really good picture of that. Another thing that's very important to do is actually when you take the scleral lens off, when you take it off, you do want to stain the eye with sodium fluorescein. So that way you can see if there's any areas of touch that you're missing, especially limbally. It may be a little bit hard to see clearance there. So assessing the cornea without the lens and with dye really helps with that. As you're checking the assessment, it's really good to also just be mindful of the of the wettability. If you see that the lens is not wetting well with their blinks as you're assessing, you can kind of expect their VAs to be a little bit affected by that. And the overfraction, just like you mentioned, may be a little bit unreliable. So just kind of watching for that as you're assessing the lens. Right, right. And you can do that squeegee method where you try to use either a Q-tip or the um, insert or remover to try to put some good conditioner on there and try to like you know, rub out the area that is not wetting well. But How do you do that? You basically try to put some, you know, conditioner, and then you just kind of get in there and try to, like, scrub it out. And it's the same method used for, like, a RGP. There's protein deposits, things like that. The doctor can go in there and, like, just scrub mm -hmm. it and just, like, get rid of it. <laughs> it's like, you know, a whiteboard eraser. <laughs> As they have the lens on? With the lens on, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> I haven't done that yet. <laughs> 
Yeah, it's not done that often, but I remember learning about it in school. Interesting. So I mentioned compression, impingement, things like that. How would you need to adjust the fit for those things? If you have compression, for those who don't know, that just means that you're blanching one of the conch vessels, and that means the lens is sitting too heavy on the conch. And these patients are going to have rebound hyperemia when they take off their lenses, but the conch may not stain. So some of the changes you would make is all at that peripheral curve to try to either add that toric periphery to it, or, you know, depending on the lens design, you may add a notch or a a vault or something of that sort. Compression is something that you may see in patients who have a pinguecula. And so you can try to adjust the fit of the lens to, or to lift it at that one specific area without causing any kind of pressure of those conch vessels. If you have impingement, those are patients that will have staining after removal. So same thing, adjust those peripheral curves, and that's going to kind of help with the alignment fit. Mm-hmm. And if you have apical touch, you just need to try to fit unstable cones with a little more sag in case the ectasia, like you mentioned, progresses. So you'll probably see staining there as well. Right. You know, during my residency, I precept a lot of externs, and I think there was some confusion about when we talk about toricity and like where toricity can be applied in a scleral lens. Oh yeah. And so right now, like all these peripheral curves, we're specifically talking about toricity to the landing zone, but you can also have back toric versus front toric. If we're talking about toricity with a scleral lens, there's two different ways to think about it. The first way is having a front toric lens. And that's when a patient has residual sill on top of the overfraction. So let's say we put a scleral lens on and their overfraction is plano minus two at 180. Well, this patient needs astigmatism correction in this scleral lens. And the way that that's utilized is putting a toric prescription on the front side of the lens. So it's put on the front surface. But if we're talking about a toric haptic zone, we're talking about the peripheral edges. And usually that means the sclera is toric. And so we need to kind of adjust the landing zone to match the toricity of the scleral, and that's going to be on the back surface of the lens usually. I forgot to mention, you need to look at rotation of the lens as well. Whenever lenses have hash marks, you need to notate, you know, where those hash marks are located or how much rotation it has, like, you know, 20 degrees left rotation, right rotation, things like that. Initially, when I started my residency, I didn't, I would just put where the hash marks are located on my notes. I would just put 2 o'clock, 8 o'clock, or, you know, I just didn't really know exactly, like, what di- what way did it even rotate? What am I even looking at? So <laughs> I would just tell the consultants, okay, look, the hash marks are here. Help me. <laughs> well, you know, for hash marks, I, I think it's really helpful to utilize your slit lamp to really get the exact, like, angle of rotation. Oh, yeah. I think we forget that there are hash marks on our slit lamp to look at that. So on some of the diagnostic lenses, if the hash mark is in a line, like that's perfect for me because you just literally line up your light beam to be exactly the same angle. Like same thing that you would do for soft lenses mm-hmm. and like determine the angle of rotation. It's a little bit harder if you're trying to line up like multiple, I guess, hash marks on the lens because sometimes the the lens is so like prolate or so elevated that you're like the light's distorting weird and my light isn't long enough. So really I just try to find one good one <laughs> and line it mm-hmm. up there. Definitely. The other thing I guess you didn't talk about was the back toric lenses. So you can have 
different sagittal heights um, kind of in the mid peripheral curves. That's definitely a more, I guess, complex topic that we're not going to touch on, but just be aware that, you know, we were talking about there was a front toric, back toric, and toric haptics or toric peripheral curves. So, yeah. And then when I talked about front toric lenses and finding residual astigmatism in the overrefraction, you have to be cautious because sometimes this could just be flexure of the lens. So flexure of a lens is when the lens bends in shape when it lands on a toric or non-spherical surface. So, you know, a toric sclera. This can also happen when a lens is too thin. And so there's minute curvature changes that creates astigmatism that's really not there. It can be a little hard to spot sometimes, especially if it's like a minor amount. What do you usually do if you think it may be flexure and not really residual astigmatism? You can do a topography over that lens and see if, you know, if it's generally spherical. If there is astigmatism like shown on there, then you may have flexure. Another way is just, you know, be really, really critical about that scleral alignment and looking for that optimal fit. So really kind of scrutinizing the fit and making sure that you don't need to incorporate toric haptics. If there is potentially flexure, you can consider increasing the, cent the center thickness of the lens or the material, but you have to keep in mind about the oxygen demand and making sure that the eye is getting enough of it. Um, but rarely should you be trying to compensate for flexure using a front surface toric. So if you've identified flexure, don't add the front toric on there. You gotta fix the fit first. Um, you're just gonna go down a spiral of changes and never find the perfect fit. And if the vision is like super off and you're just not really sure, you can also do rhinoscopy over scleral lenses to see if there's any optical abnormalities. Um, definitely look at the surface wettability because you can always have, you know, induced astigmatism or something weird going on. Or if you have a ton of tear film debris, that can definitely affect what your, you know, residual or your over refraction is. I haven't done retinoscopy yet. I'm I'm kind of scared. <laughs> I, I get nervous when I do retinoscopy on a normal cornea, <laughs> let alone on top of a scleral. So now that we've assessed the lens, we've done the over-refraction, we've got the, you know, all the good stuff, it is finally time dun, dun, dun. <laughs> to teach them insertion and removal. And this can be... <laughs> This can be exciting and fun, or it can be dreadful. Right. <laughs> there are so many ways that, you know, we can really do insertion or teach them insertion. What are your go-tos? Well, the go-to is the DMV scleral cup, a.k.a. the plunger, which I know we're never supposed to refer to it as the plunger, but I feel like even if I tell <laughs> my patients not to refer to it, they'll come back at their next visit and be like, I, you know, can I get another plunger? <laughs> Um, so anyways, um, I think that's the most, the standard, typical inserter that you would use. It does come with like a vented opening or not. I do personally recommend the vented opening or opened kind uh, just because there's bacteria that can build up if you have the kind that's closed and patients are just not really good with, you know, keeping up with cleaning their insertion devices. So mm -hmm. just off the bat, even if you get that, I just, I just cut it off in clinic. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. That's smart. The other method is the finger insertion method where you kind of have their two fingers, their index and their middle finger, as well as their thumb, the tripod method, kind of just holding onto the lens. I would say most of my patients are not comfortable with this. Mm -hmm. Like when they see their finger getting that close to their eye, like they're just, 
not having <laughs> so i i give them a printout that has that and i say like if you if you get so advanced that you're not dependent on the dmv device perfect like you could try the finger method but i don't recommend that as the first you know attempt so yeah i think the insertion instructions the most important thing is to tell patients to really kind of tuck their chin in and bend over across you know Mm -hmm. the table or wherever they have things set up because you know they're not used to having to put such a large device on and I try to tell them like when that first gush of fluid when you feel the cold you don't stop there you keep your eyelids open you keep going and you know it's mm -hmm. it's possible to push too hard but most people do not so I say it's okay to you know really kind of push the lens you know up into your eye until you really feel like it's secure and that's the other reason why you don't have the DMV that has a closed end, because then at that point, you can really kind of keep the DMV device stuck on there, which is very scary. But So if it's vented, you know, for sure, that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. But on the market, there's actually a ton of other devices out there to assist if they can't get it right with a traditional kind. And I always tell my patients that there are these other methods because I think they get discouraged if they can't get it right with the DMV device. So... Some alternative inserters include the EZI scleral lens applicator ring. So it just is a little ring with a, a little kind of cup to hold the scleral lens. So it's kind of easier to maneuver if they have trouble kind of balancing the DMV plunger or scleral cup. Um, the other one is called the O-ring. It's a orthodontic ring and it's basically a, kind of like a small plastic piece that they put on their finger and they can balance the lens on there. With patients who complain about not being able to I, like see where they're trying to aim at, there is some devices that are lighted and that helps kind of with the centration of where the lens are. So one of them is a sea green lens inserter. There's an optional stand that you can get with it but it actually is kind of expensive I remember the first time I told a patient to get it they were like oh great like how much does it cost and I was like I think it's like $70 and they're like oh my gosh <laughs> so it's just you know one of those things sometimes it's worth that investment so I tell them like it's worth the investment to help them with the insertion process another one is the Luma Serter Plus Luma Serter Plus this is like having a DMV scleral cup inserter, but it's at the end of, it can be put at the end of a pen light or a finger, so a little bit easier to hold. Uh, there is also the S5 mini and S5 inserter with a telescoping arm. So this was designed, I think, by Dr. Fayez, but this has a suction base that you can attach to the sink or counter and then also has a light unit so that it kind of assists with centration of the lens. Um, I've had a patient that came in and he was like, I figured it out like this is what works and he, he showed it to me and his he basically attached his vented DMV inserter on top of a golf like a golf tee so the golf tee was like the base and then he had the inserter coming out of it and so it was like it elevated off the table so that he can use both of his hands to hold his eyelids so some of our patients can definitely get very very creative with it but I tell my patients like the poor man's version if you need a base is you know, if you get a styrofoam cup stick a hole in the top, put your DMV in there, and that kind of help as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think I was telling you about this, like, just earlier this month, there was a Florida man that actually created what he calls a contact lens robot, and CNN actually covered him. <laughs> but he's actually a scleral lens wearer, and he created this device that basically has a an arm with the DMV scleral cup inserter on there and it will like he you just need to I guess keep your eyelids open and like 
the instrument will slowly elevate the scleral lens to the eye. Oh, wow. That's impressive. A patient created this? A patient created it, right. (laughs) He was so sick and tired of what was out there. (laughs) Right. Because I guess all the other ones are kind of like just fancy stands of, you know, a sort or another, but nothing really helps you put it in, like as if you were in the practice or in the clinic and someone was putting it in the eye for you kind of thing. And so Mm -hmm. that was really interesting. And I think at the end of the segment on him, they were talking about how he was doing like a clinical trial to see if he can eventually get it like FDA approved and trademarked and all that. So <laughs> we'll link that in our on our website so you guys can read about this Florida man <laughs> designer. That's so impressive. When we're inserting these lenses, it I mentioned this a million times, but you have to make sure these patients know to fill the lens with only isotonic non-preserved saline so like common ones are pure lens lacquer pure scleral fill and then one of the newer ones is neutrophil they can't use just any regular contact lens solution or a disinfectant definitely not clear care because i have heard of that before oh my gosh not my patient yes not my patient but another staff doctor at sco with me i can't even imagine trying to get that off Wait, was this after the treatment or like, you know, after it becomes water or <laughs> this is before like the red, the bottle with the red cap? I think it was before because. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yes, it was bad <laughs> from how they explained it. And I've gotten clear care in my eyes before. So and that was rough. But it just having clear care completely on your cornea I can't I can't even imagine you know I actually did ortho k for a while and I loved uh-huh. it and one of the times I rinsed the lenses with clear care <laughs> and when I put it on I could barely open my eyes to take it out it was it was a mess it was so hard trying to take it out trying to squeeze that lens out and at that time I didn't have a small plunger to just kind of use a plunger for it what a mess. You know what? That's exactly why I'm getting LASIK, so I don't make mistakes like this. Well, see, you only got to do it once, right? You only got to make that mistake once because you live and you learn. Oof, yes. That is definitely one of those mistakes you make once, and that is it. You've learned your lesson. That I learned my lesson. I'm getting LASIK. <laughs> when we're talking about removal, again, you can use another DMV device. But the DMV device that you're using to remove the lens is not the same as the one you put that you use to put the lens in. It's smaller. It's a smaller plunger. And it's really important to educate patients that they're different sizes because they're going to be sitting there trying to take it off with that large plunger and it's going to go nowhere. <laughs> right. Well, the other thing is making sure that they don't try to, you know, remove the lens when the plunger is like suctioned to the center of the lens. Otherwise, they're like truly just trying to like yank it off the eye. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I've had a patient that uh, mentioned her new lens is suctioning too hard. And I, and I asked her over the phone, what, well, you know, what's happening? How are you taking the lens off? And she said, well, I'm going for the for the center and I'm trying to take it off. And I was like, wait a minute. Rewind. You have been a habitual scleral lens wearer and you're doing what now? <laughs> I basically had to create a video with uh, some other students like they were the patients. And I was talking through the video and I explained how to insert it and remove it and I emailed it to her just for her to have and she was like oh I I guess I forgot about this and I was like wow I guess I need to improve my education more and mention that at every visit you just never know what patients know and don't know 
Right, right. Well, you know, that's why I have the patients kind of go through the process without me so I can watch what they do. Same with soft contact lens. I'll like, if I'm fitting a soft contact lens, I'll be like, oh, wash your hands. I'll be back mm-hmm. with the trial lenses. And then like, I'll have them put it on themselves and you could see kind of what habits they have picked up oh, I see. over the years. Or because, you know, you just expect established wearers to know everything, but that is definitely not the case. Um, I remember during my residency, there was one girl who came, she was fitted by an outside provider and she was coming in for like a refit. And I was, you know, or I was helping her kind of fit her lenses. And then I was like, oh, like, let's switch the lens on you. There's a new lens that came in so you could take off the one that you're wearing and put this new one in. And I I watched as she did it. And she had the largest insertion bubble ever. And I was like, doesn't that feel uncomfortable? And she was like, oh, no, like, this is how I always wear it. Like, it always has a bubble. And I remember being so shocked because I was like, what? (laughs) How long have you been wearing this? And then she said she's been doing this for two years. How can you see? And, you know, when she had come in for like our fitting, like I, I just remember thinking like, oh, her eyes must have been really dry. That's why I'm seeing stain. Like I didn't even think about her inserting her old lenses with a large insertion bubble every day, every time, you know? And it was just one of those moments where I was like, yeah, you really have to educate your patients and just review kind of the basics just to make sure that they they remember all of it. But the other thing is just making sure they come away with reading material because most people don't retain everything at a doctor's visit. Like, let's be real. As much as we think our patients listen and retain everything, they they definitely do not. Mm -hmm. So giving them you know, like the scleral lens societies, like, you know, handout about cleaning and things like that, like having a checklist, having, you know, pictures, definitely a good Mm -hmm. reference for for patients when they leave your office. Oh, yeah, definitely. With COVID, uh, we tried to limit patients getting out of their chair and putting the lens on, washing their hands. Like, we're just trying to limit their moving around and things like that. And so we we're the ones that are putting the lens on and off constantly. And she's been wearing scleral lenses. My patient was wearing scleral lenses for years. And I just, I don't know. I, 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 I did make an assumption that she just knew how to take it off properly. And, you know, the number one rule with removal is to never go for the center. But, again, another learning moment for me. So if patients just want to show out, they can always use their fingers <laughs> to remove the lenses. The finger removal method includes breaking the suction of the lens by creating a gap between the lens and the sclera. They do this by pressing the lower eyelid gently against the edge of the sclera as the patient looks down. And so then the lens just pops off. Pretty cool. Mm -hmm. You know, this is actually really important to kind of review with patients because most of them are not carrying around that DMV removal device in their pocket and it may or may not be clean. And so I had a, a patient when I was in Minnesota and he was telling me how he was on a hunting trip with his buddies and he was he was a scleral lens wearer and he just thought something got in his eye and it was so uncomfortable that he he like had a moment of panic because he's like I couldn't take it out and then oh, he's like wow. then I remembered you telling me about this finger method and so he remember he like was telling me how hard it was he's like I was pressing so hard to break the suction like with the eyelid and he's like I eventually got it out and then it popped out and then I had to like hunt for the lens because oh, he like my. he was just he was like I just had this moment in the bush where I was like it was just havoc and I was like <laughs> I was like I can I can only imagine how frustrating that was, but I'm also really glad that you remember about the finger method, like instead of just kind of bearing or just enduring that, you know, time of discomfort, he remembered that he could take out the lens. That sounds like me and that clear care with my ortho K lens. (laughs) 
(laughs) Panic. It was so hard getting that lens out. I just couldn't open my eyes and I was tearing so much. You know, for or for students or for recent grads or whatnot, if you can't imagine what it's like to break the function, I would think about mm-hmm. it like maybe the first time you did three Miragonio and you didn't put in enough cushioning solution in there and then you were trying to get it off your patient's eye Ooh. or your classmate's eye. That's what it's going to be like. So <laughs> really using maneuvering the eyelid to try to break the suction. Um, but yeah, hopefully that made it relatable. <laughs> That is a really good analogy. And then there's that moment of panic, like, crap, this gonial lens is stuck on their eye forever. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's a really good one. I know we talked about a lot of things. I think I kind of want to mention one more thing. Another option that scleral lenses can have are fenestrations. And I feel like we didn't really talk about this Mm -hmm. with school, but it's a debatable topic. Basically, fenestrations are meant to increase fluid or air exchange by providing a 0.5 to 1 millimeter round channel in the scleral lens. So it's basically like a little hole in the scleral lens, and it's usually mid-peripheral. And it used to be used when the material was PMMA and there was no oxygen exchange, but now sclerals are gas permeable, so it's not really necessary to have fenestrations. Some of the pros of having fenestrations include uh, not needing to fill the bowl, so it's an easier option for pediatric patients that need a scleral lens. Or when there's too much suction on the lens, uh, fenestrations can make it a little bit easier to remove. Supposedly, fenestrations help bubbles escape, but that could be a pro or a con. And then another pro that I can think of with fenestrations is renewal of tears, which means it may remove waste products and possibly reduce fogging in patients. Some things to watch out for, though, with fenestrations, although bubbles can leave the vault, it can also enter. (laughs) It's a two-way street. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And when bubbles are created, that can cause discomfort, which is surprising that your patient didn't complain about a lot of discomfort with having that huge bubble all the time. (laughs) Right. I should have actually checked her corneal sensitivity, but she was like, she's like 16 years old. (laughs) It's just young. Oh, wow. Yeah. Another thing with fenestrations to be cautious of is debris. Debris can enter the vault, and this includes mucus and lipid from your tears. And a consequence of that is having blurry vision or fogging. I think the biggest thing to watch out for with fenestrations is it is an opening for microorganisms that can enter the vault and kind of linger on the cornea. So that's just something to watch out for. So pros and cons with fenestrations, it's really just not used as commonly. But if you happen to see a hole, a perfect hole in a scleral lens, that's exactly what that is. Well, speaking of microorganisms, there are a lot of different complications that can occur with scleral lenses, and one of them being microbial keratitis. So of course, we need to also review how do we clean and care for these lenses. And I would say Scleral Lens Society has a really good handout for this, like I was mentioning, definitely for patient education or to include in your little baggie when you have your patient kind of leave with their first pair of lenses. Um, Some of the most common solutions include Boston Simplus, Boston Advance, Miraflow, Unique pH, ClareCare. There's a bunch of different kind of solutions that are safe to use on an RGP lens. But of course, you want to be really careful if you do have hydropeg on the lenses, because for hydropeg-treated lenses, you cannot use any abrasive or alcohol-based cleaning solutions or tap water or any enzymatic cleaners. So that includes Progent, No Boston Advance, or Lobo. What's approved for hydropeg is Boston Simplus, Unique pH, Clear Care, 
clear care with hydroglide and tangible clean tangible clean is their the cleaning solution specifically made by uh, the same company that makes hydropeg so I would say if your patients use hydropeg or has hydropeg on their lenses it's probably easier to tell them to use the tangible clean yeah makes it easier for everyone you mentioned microbial keratitis there are a few other complications that we should be cautious of and Honestly, when it comes to contact lenses and even sclerols, there are so many that you have to keep in mind. And it really takes time and experience to not make, you know, avoidable mistakes or, you know, prevent certain complications. Some of them include uh, apical bearing due to a low sag selection, blanching, uh, midday fogging, conch prolapse, corneal hypoxia, things like that. Doing a really good, accurate assessment of the cornea before putting a lens on is important. Right, right. Well, the other thing is just, you know, once you find the perfect fit, like definitely have the patient still follow up with you at like, you know, set period of time instead of extending it for the full year, you know, for the next follow up, just so you can monitor them a little bit close, more closely. But, you know, the other thing is just re-educating another touch point for you to re-educate them on proper hygiene, uh, you know, care Mm -hmm. for the lenses and just check them for any complications or kind of discomfort with the lenses. Yeah, for sure. So one piece of education that we forget to tell patients is throwing away their case. I tell patients to throw away their case every three months. A lot of times, like, these patients don't have excellent vision or, like, they just don't really notice how dirty a case can be. So it's very important to tell them about that. (laughs) I love – actually, I mentioned this with my soft contact lens patients who are in lenses that are not dailies. I'm like, do you hoard your cases? (laughs) Because I'm like, I've been meeting a lot of hoarders. (laughs) And then they'll be like – oh, you know, in the beginning, I, so they'll like admit to it and they'll be like, no, but I don't do that anymore. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> Just like how you don't sleep in your lenses. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> But I'm just like, you know, if they give you a new case with the solution, that means you should have tossed your old one. And I'm like, that's supposed to be a reminder to you to not like keep using the same case. Yeah, you you would hope. You would hope. Have you heard about there's this well, there's this one lens I actually want to go over with you to finish this off. I think it's pronounced Aries, A-R-E-S. It's a uh, a lens that's actually it's a scleral lens from Valley Contacts. And specifically it's a higher order aberration correcting scleral lens. However, to be able to fit this lens, you have to have a certain aberrometer. It's called the Ovitz, O-V-I-T-Z, X-Wave Aberometer. And this technology it utilizes information from the whole visual system from front to back, so not just the cornea, and it picks up submillimeter differences and and can determine the most accurate axis so patients can have, you know, as crisp as crisp and clear vision as possible. So pretty cool. I don't think we're going to get it while I'm a resident, but hopefully I'll be able to, you know, work with this lens and, and work with Valley Contacts and be able to dispense it eventually in the near future. Right. I actually haven't heard too much about it. I do. I d- they did offer a webinar a few weeks ago, but I happened to miss it. But I do have a friend that's fitting it. Ooh. and She said that, you know, it's been pretty amazing. The response that she's getting from, mm-hmm. I guess, patient satisfaction. And so I'm like really excited to catch up with her and kind of review some cases together. Oh, that's so cool. I hope I get to fit it soon. Since we're talking about special, I guess, scleral lenses, there are impression-based scleral contact lenses, which we're not going to go into too much detail about. Um, but there's one out there on the market called iPrint Pro. 
and um, providers will make a ocular plaster mold of the patient's eyes and it uses a very special type of um, polymer and the mold is actually mailed back to the manufacturer and they will digitize it and they use that to make a custom scleral lens. So it's really, really exciting if you, you know, can incorporate that into your practice. It's a really great option to have for patients. So the cost may be more expensive than your classical scleral lenses, but it definitely decreases the chair time. That is really cool. Just imagine if you had that combined with an aberrometer. Right. <laughs> you know, I, there's actually a video of me, me getting it a mold done, and I can share that on our Instagram. Oh, yes. I thought it was going to, I was. I thought I was going to feel something, you know, when it went in, and it was actually a very cooling, therapeutic kind of sensation. And after it's removed, like, there is no stain on the cornea at all. Like, the polymer that they're using is very safe for the eyes, and... I mean, I, they, like once the mold, like once that polymer was in my eye, literally I'm just having a conversation with people. (laughs) (laughs) That is kind of creepy. It's so cool though. I still have the mold. I I mean, there's no reason for me to get it digitized, but it's a very fun (laughs) thing to have. (laughs) Yeah, definitely share that if you can. If you share that, I actually have a case that I want to share then. The case that I want to share is about increasing the diameter for therapeutic indications for this patient that had corneal neo and significant injection, and it was pretty interesting, and I have quite a bit of pictures, so I'll, I'll post that on our website, and if you, if you can find your video, that'd be really cool, too. So we went through quite a bit. Of course, if anyone has any other questions or any tips, we would love for you know, you to either submit a voice recording or email us, or if you have our number, text us tips or tricks that you have on your end. Until next time. Thank you for listening to the Cornea Corner podcast. Visit our website, thecorneacorner.com and our Instagram page at thecorneacorner for additional resources, including photos of any of the cases that were discussed.